This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. With streaming services like Spotify and social media platforms galore, there's more data available in 2017 than ever before. But the music industry has been a latecomer to the data usage field. And data is only useful if you know how to use it. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Hill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Merch Table was created by musicians to help other musicians sell directly to their fans. For 15 years, they've worked with a diverse range of artists to deliver an exceptional customer experience. From projects as big as top 10 billboard ranking pre-orders to jobs as small as helping a band sell their first t-shirt, Merch Table can do it all. Visit merchtable.com. On today's show, we're sharing my keynote presentation from the inaugural Upstream Festival in Seattle. I spoke with Amichu Zigwe, manager of Run the Jewels, and RCA A&R guy Tunji Balligan about how they're using the data that's out there in their own businesses. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Amichi Uzigwe and Tunji Balligan. Amichi, Tunji, welcome. Thank you guys Thanks. for... Thanks for having us. ...for coming along. So this is an interesting format, this Upstream Festival. I think it's been really cool so far. However, the way that it's set up, you guys have maybe heard a little bit already about data and analytics, if you were here before in the breakout sessions, which I was wandering around to, and they were fabulous, so interesting, and obviously everyone here knows way more about data and analytics than I do, so we'll be having you guys up on stage in about five minutes. What we wanted to talk to you guys about today is pretty much more of an overview of how people in the industry are actually using data, because I think that that's the interesting part for all of us. One thing I wanted to start out with is the fact that the music industry is sort of a latecomer to the data industry, and you know the tech people in the room probably have been dealing with data way longer than the rest of us have. I did a little quick research, and you guys know that the Nielsen Corporation that we know as SoundScan and the people who collect data for radio, they have been around for 95 years, and they have collected data on all sorts of different industries. I have a friend who's in the supermarket data analysis industry, which has been around for like 80 years, whereas SoundScan just started in the 80s. So for the music industry, we have been collecting data for not that long. And in the, initially, we collected data on two things, sales and radio play. And both of those didn't really give a complete picture of how people were interacting with data and certainly not how people were consuming music. So I think what I'm going to start out by asking you guys to talk about is in the real world, now that there's so much data available on the internet, how are we actually using that? Because data is really only useful if you can use it, right? So, Amici, you want to start? I think it's a great question. I think different people, I mean, it's such an overwhelming concept once you start digging into, into what it all means and where it all comes from and how to aggregate it and how to filter it and, and, and what have you. But I think at the end of the day, we are in a new ecosystem. We're in a digital ecosystem. We're in a knowledge-based economy, and, and data speaks directly to that. And that's, I think, one of the reasons the music business was so late in the game, because it was such an old-school industry, 
just top to bottom. And it's, it's, it's changing dramatically. When the floor fell out of the industry in 2006, didn't have a choice but to start getting smart about it. And I think that's happening. It's happening maybe a little more slowly than some of us would like, but at the end of the day, it's a data-driven world, to your point, that's been going on for a long time. And I think we just need to, you need to be able to read the tea leaves, which are pretty obvious, and the whole world is talking about data. There's obviously something there, and, and some of us made a choice to go in and explore that and see what it means to us. And again, I think it, it could mean, what it means to me could be totally different than what it means to, to Tunji for what, what we're trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, it's there. The hardest part to me is the human part, right? Because you can aggregate all the data in the world and you can learn X amount through machines, but the human analysis is still the critical part and the human element of the data conversation cannot be pushed to the side because if it is, we're in the music business and it's a very much a human business. So you've got to have a, a convergence of those two forces. And that's a great way to start out talking to Tunji because you are at a major label and you have, I mean, I know that right now is like a very exciting time. You were doing a cool breakout with the Indify guys about the way that people can use data to find out sort of what is going to be the hot new band. Like, where are people excited about an artist? But like to Amici's point, you know, obviously there's more to it than that, right? Because if, if, if we could just look at data and find the next hot thing, we would all be bazillionaires. And, you know, we'd be putting on this festival instead of Paul Allen. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, it's amazing to be here and to even be on the stage that Quincy Jones was on earlier is mind-blowing. <laughs> but to answer that question, I mean, I, I think it goes back to what Amici was saying. It's the combination of reading the data, but then, you know, taking account taste and preference and what you're into. And I think, you know, I work at a major label. It's funny, like you mentioned 2006 was the year that the whole thing changed. That was my first year in the music industry. So I kind of came in as like internet kid, like a kid that was already always online and you know a big fan of music and I've always tried to kind of like remain a fan in terms of what I've done in the music industry but you know about those storied labels that all have a specific kind of an energy like Def Jam started off as the scrappy hip-hop label and you know sub pop has its own identity and its own energy and you know these the major labels kind of have kind of work that way too so let's say there's a an amazing Norwegian black metal artist that's the data is crazy that might not necessarily be the best artist for our label at RCA because we're really great at black music and pop, you know? So I think it comes down to taste and preference and, and what's happening in that moment. And the other thing is that sometimes, you know, data is tricky. Sometimes it can be in the moment looking like something amazing, but something it doesn't really last that long, you know? And I think it's, it's our job, at least it's my job in, in terms of what I do to, to assess all the data and, and turn it into kind of a real life human moment and, and see what can it become and, and how can it evolve and what is it gonna take to take this artist or this record or you know this band to the next level as opposed to just having this one quick moment. Because how many artists have we all seen that come and go like nothing. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually one of the things I really wanted to touch on today is these two things. You know, there are people, I mean, for example, I was listening to, I can't remember which panel it was. Somebody was doing, I think, a Napster panel and they were talking about people who listen to the same stuff. You know, it's like they're very consistent listeners, right? It's like you don't really seek out new stuff, but you listen to the same stuff. So there's that group of, of users. And then there's these other people who are like, always want what's new, what's next, what's new, what's next. But the problem with that group of people is they're fickle, right? 
So they want what's next. They don't necessarily like find an artist and stick to it. So how do we deal in this world with those two groups of people? Because in my opinion, those boring people who are over here just listening to the same thing, to me, those are super fans. And you want to super serve the super fans, you know? I think it's an excellent point, and I couldn't agree more. I have my own sort of way of differentiating it, and that's a sort of a 90-10 model. 90% of people who listen to music or follow entertainment or arts in general are passive. They're not hardcore fans. The 10%, right, those of us who are listening to the same thing all the time or going out and actively buying things or, or going out and buying the reissue of the album that came out 30 years ago, right? That's only 10% of the audience, and that's not where the money is. The money is in the 90%. So we can, we spend a lot of time for Run the Jewels super serving that core audience, which is the lifeblood of what these guys do, but not at the expense of trying to talk to the 90%, right? You gotta, if you're trying to grow, you've gotta, you've gotta go this way. You know, you've gotta have a trajectory that takes you to a larger audience, if that's what you're looking for. That's not for everybody. But I definitely agree that 10%, right, of those of us who live and breathe this stuff every day are not the ones who we should be looking at to determine where, you know, how to succeed in the music business. It's, I've got two brothers, right? My older brother turned me on to music. Now he's a UPS executive. He doesn't even listen to music except when he's commuting, right? And my younger brother's at Google and he doesn't really listen to music except when he's driving, Right, so they are that. They make a lot of money, but they're in the 90%, and these are the people you want to get to, because they are the ones who can drive your career to the next level. You know, I mean, I also feel like there might be like a hybrid or like a new version of of that listener, because of what's happened with the internet growing so quickly in the last few years. And you know, I, I know people. You know, you always hear people say, "Oh, I listen to everything," you know, except for a country or like whatever. Like you always hear people say, "I listen to everything," and I and I feel like. The kids from this generation really exemplify that because, you know, when I was growing up in the late 80s and the 90s, in the early 2000s, it was like you would discover music through MTV and the radio and like maybe you'd like be at a friend's house and they'd be like, yo, borrow my CD and you'd borrow the CD and you'd go, you know, and then, then it came the time where you could copy the CD or I, I even remember when I would get a tape and dub it and all that other stuff. Nowadays, everything is so out there that these kids really are discovering all types of, not just, not just music, just culture in general. They're, they're, they're voraciously like consuming content, whether it's on YouTube or Apple Music or Spotify or iTunes or Amazon or whatever. Like, there's all these different platforms for people to discover, to discover new music. And the kids that I meet now that are in high school, they really do listen to everything. They really do appreciate, you know, Drake and Ed Sheeran and, you know, a super underground artist that's only doing local shows and festivals or something like that. And, and there's, there's this kind of new breed of listener that is just listening to everything. And I, and I think you, you can see that reflecting in the artist community where a lot of the artists who come out now are, are like hybrids and they kind of like, they live in two different worlds or they, they're, they're very good at shifting between genres, you know? Drake is, Drake is a great example of that. Yep. You know, he started off as a singing rapper and now he's, his biggest songs aren't even, don't even have raps on them, you know? So I think, Culture and music specifically are, is constantly evolving, and you know it's it's our job as you know the quote unquote gatekeepers of the industry to react to that, to contribute to that, but also to kind of like take cues from what the fans and the, what the kids are, are doing and saying. So, and just to add quickly to his point, I do think totally agree with the new audience, the younger audience being way more into a variety. My daughters are the same way. But I think digital has a huge, huge role in, in, in effectuating that because 
you can access everything now, but you know, be pre-digital, you didn't have all those those options. So it's a lot easier to, and I think that's a that's an amazing thing. So Tunji, from your perspective, how are those, I mean, if the kids are listening to everything and there's more of a sort of widespread palette, what, how do we capture those people? Like from your perspective in your business, how are people trying to capitalize on that type of appetite? I think what's kind of changed along with the fact that the fans are now, you know, kind of all over the place is that the artist has a much louder voice than ever and the artist can speak directly to their fans now, you know, through social media and through smarter ways of touring and merch and just establishing an identity outside of the music that brings more and, and, and tells the full story, you know. So obviously I can only like speak on what I've what I've gone through and the artists that I've worked with, but someone that we were talking about in the other panel with Indify is this kid Khalid, who's you know, is a nineteen year old kid, he's from El Paso, Texas. He you know, was releasing music during his senior year of high school and started to catch fire online. You know, we found him, we signed him. And, you know, he's doing really well now, but one of the primary reasons why he's doing so well is because of his method of interacting with his fans, which is just a constant conversation. You know, you can, you can really like, he's one of those artists that you can really send him a tweet and he's gonna, he might respond. And, you know, he, after every single show that he does, he meets every single fan, takes a photo with them, you know, knowing that that fan is gonna post that photo onto their network and expose him to more, more fans. And, it, you know, I think, I think what's shifted now is that the power is, is moving away from the major labels and it's moving away from the corporations and more into the hands of the fans and the artists, which is the most important interaction that there is in music is between the fan and the artist. Oh, sh <laughs> They agree. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's really what's most important for us in our positions to maintain is like that conversation, strengthening that conversation between the fans and the artists and, and making the fans feel like they're a part of the story and a part of the growth. And, and especially recently, the, the last few artists that I've been working with, you know, it's really been a fan-led initiative in, in terms of, of the blow-up. It was never like, you know, the label created all this stuff. It was like we found an amazing artist and we built the culture around the artist so that the fans could discover it and the fans turned it into something. It wasn't like we pushed a button and it's like Khalid blew up or like, or like with Bryson. Like that was with Bryson Teller, who's another artist that I work with. That was an organic fan-based thing that we just fanned the flames of, pardon the pun, and we just made it into a bigger thing, but it was already kind of his thing that we just amplified and turned into a bigger thing. So I feel like the proposition is kind of changing now, where it's like labels are truly partners now as opposed to like the people that control the whole table, the whole deck, you know, so that's a great point. And Around the Jewels is an excellent example of that. Amazing example. Yeah, I mean, they really are in, in the sense that when they got together and we give all our albums away for free as well as selling them, but they were 38, I think, at the time, and they both had these sort of storied underground careers and super credible, and the 10% knew who they were, but the 90% had no idea. And they honestly didn't know if they had careers left, so when they got together to do this one, this one record, they were like, hey, let's put it out and go tour, and give, we're gonna give it away for free, and as the manager, I'm like, what did you just say, <laughs> right? How are we supposed to make money? And they were like, you know what, it's a thank you to our fans for supporting us for all these years, and if they like it, they'll pay us back. Because these guys, they were at the merch booth signing, right? They never had an opportunity to create distance between themselves and their fans. And it's a beautiful thing, because their Instagram and Twitter and their social media is the connection to the fans. Like you were saying, they talk to them every day. 
I mean, go check out Killer Mike's Instagram feed and you'll see a pretty interesting conversation or LP always happening, always happening. And they're their own best publicists. You know, if we want to get the word out, one of them will just tweet something and the whole world knows about it before our publicists can even pick up the keyboard. But that is priceless. We protect it. They entrust us with protecting it. The data that we collect, we give away the music, like I said, and we collect email addresses in return. We've got about 700,000 of them. We do not exploit it in any other way but to talk to the fans and to learn internally, like selling, like people, you could sell the data. And we're like, why would we ever do something like that? Now, if a, some other corporation wants to do that with their data, fine. I'm not here to judge anybody else. I'm only here to talk about what we do and how it relates to our audience and what's important to my guys because their fans are everything. If everything went away and they could just still rock for their fans, they'd be happy. You know, like the success is great, but they're here to make music and communicate with their fans. That's what they do. And by preserving that relationship, it is sacrosanct to us. If, if we on the management team mess with that, we're gone, right? Fans come first and everything else is about setting the table for that conversation or that interaction and then getting the hell out of the way. So we try and do that as best as we can. And what's interesting also about that is that you guys chose to do that transaction, give away the album for free, and collect an email address through the platform Cash Music, which is a nonprofit yep. out of That's Portland, right. Oregon. And shout out to Cash. Shout out to Cash, who are in the house somewhere. And I think what's really especially cool about that is that Cash has a manifesto or a belief or a value that we really need to control our own data, right? One of the most interesting things about the internet in the last however many years it's been since the internet exploded, is this sort of surprising willingness of people to give away their data, right? Just to like put everything you want in there, you know, oh, you want my name, address, social security number, home phone number, date of birth, dog's name, et cetera, here you go. In the support of, you know, MySpace, Facebook, Friendster, all these things, people kind of were willing to give this stuff away. And Cash's point, as far as I understand it, I don't speak for them, but I'm, this is my paraphrase, is why give that to a corporation? Why give that information to a corporation? Why, why not control that information yourself and thereby control your connection to your fans? Yep. So I think that's really excellent. And Ta you learn about them that way, I think, in profound ways by looking at the data. We pull in ticketing, record sales, every shred of data we can pull in. We pull it in and we try and learn and get smarter about our audience so we can super serve them because... It's fun. I mean, to me, I'm not a technologist or anything, but I'm a huge fan of technology. And if you look at it, data can be overwhelming, but if you look at it almost like a puzzle, like let's find these patterns, let's find these connections, let's find these behaviors, let's find ways to cut out the noise and go directly to the people we're trying to reach or understand what it is that they want from us, something different, something, you know, here or here, whatever the case, and try and work towards that without losing your own artistic or creative trajectory. I actually have a question for you real quick, because, I mean, Run the Jewels is, was basically two solo careers that fused, and, you know, they decided to make it into a group, and then they kind of moved on from there. And I remember seeing LP perform when I was, you know, in college, and I remember right. seeing Killer Mike with Outkast and, and all that, but how many of, of their fans heard about it when Run the Jewels started, and how many do you feel like, you know, came, came along the journey with them it's and a, already knew about them right. individually? It's a great question, because we still get comments from people like killer mike what are you up to these days like old fans right. who've never didn't even an lp2 who didn't even know about run the jewels right. and then you have a few years ago we were doing a show in new york and you know there's a line down the street and I, I'm, I'm out there talking to the kids about these they didn't know who lp was 
or Def Jux right. or Killer Mike and Outkast. They just knew Run the Jewels. Right. You know, and that's the younger audience. So it's, it's an interesting thing to see these audiences now start to merge. And then you have the LP contingent and the Killer Mike contingent. You have the people that were into them because, you know, Mike because of the Southern rap, and then you have the indie rock kids who are in the LP, so they're all sort of coming together to create a big party. And it's pretty amazing, you know, to, 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 to witness that and to see them become an entity outside of their individual careers, right? Because that's ultimately the goal. Way, way more people know them now as Run the Jewels than they do their individual entities. was Repulsion by Quasi. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. 
To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Did you like our interview with Silverstein's Shane Told? Then check out his podcast, The Lead Singer Syndrome. Shane lets you be a fly on the wall as he talks to other lead singers about what it's like to front a professional band. Guests have included Lynn Gunn of Paris, Vic Fuentes of Pierce the Veil, Fat Mike of NoFX, and many, many more. Take a listen and subscribe at leadsingersyndrome.com. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Amici Uzigwe and Tunji Balligan. So Tunji, I want to especially talk about you. You. Let's do it. <laughs> because you were an artist first before. I mean, you've been at major labels for some years now, which is funny for a person of your age because you're not that old either. But you did. You actually Lucky started as an art as an artist. Yeah. And I think that makes probably a huge difference. It certainly made a huge difference to your career, I think, because like you were saying, I mean, I think probably everyone in this room is interested in the idea of it's like so you can look at some, an artist like Khalid, who's blowing up in organically on the internet, right? Has fans doing whatever they're doing to show that they're interested in what he's up to. But so do a lot of people. Like, how do you decide, no, this one is the one that we're really going to work with that we think is, has a future? I guess in, in like the core of my being, I'm, a, I'm still an artist, but really I started as a fan, you know, and, and I'm still a fan and, and I try to always think like a fan because like I said earlier, the, the most important interaction is between the artist and the fan. And, I literally just try to work with the people that I like the most, that I'm a fan of. And I, and I don't try to think of like the corporate or the, you know, how much money is this going to make? I mean, I believe in my taste and I believe that I have a pretty good gauge on what people will like. But ultimately, like, I just work with the people that inspire me. And I was also lucky because the first artist that I worked with that really blew up was Kendrick Lamar. So it was sort of like, it, it was an artist that, you know, a cultural artist with a lot of authenticity that doesn't play the hit game and really just makes great projects and connects with his fans. So being, you know, coming into, into the game and being associated with an artist like that, I was never looked at as a kid that was going to sign, you know, the next corny little rap song, you know? So it's a combination of, of those two things. Really just like, I'm really that dude who goes home and like opens up 20 tabs on SoundCloud and listens to every single thing before he goes to bed. Like I never lost that fan feeling and and that's what I've, I've used to guide me and you know luckily the the trends in the industry have sort of gone more my way and I've made some I guess I've made some good good decisions and good good choices but going back to the whole artist thing like I think my ability to connect with you with young artists goes back to the fact that I'm still an artist at heart you know and you know that also kind of led to me becoming a, an A&R was because you know being a young rapper and I actually played more shows in Seattle than anywhere else. Hey, where's Melly at? Shout out to Melly. But, um, you know, being a young, a young artist and meeting, well, being an older artist now, but meeting these young artists, they're able to connect to my story. And, and I don't think I necessarily come off as like this like, guy in a suit that's trying to steal your, your creativity. You know, I, and I try, to, I try to connect with these kids on a level that they understand because I remember being in that position and I remember talking to people in the music industry and not really being able to connect properly with them. So I put myself back in those shoes. I mean, obviously that was a while ago for me, but you know, th those, those principles don't change. And artists respect artists, you know, and I, I patterned my career as a music executive more like an artist <laughs> than like the typical music executive. So like, I think about the details of it. For example, like if you go to my Instagram, a lot of A&R people, every single time that they're with an artist or every new release or everything that they have any, any piece of, they'll post it. And I'm really just posting the stuff that feels authentic to me and, and to my life. Because I know that artists are gonna be looking at what I'm doing and I don't wanna be that dude that's like, 
the industry dude that's like corny. And, 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 I, and I think about those things because artists want to work with people that can help them become greater artists. And, you know, I, I never want to be the guy that's like, thinks he's bigger than the artist. Because it's, again, it's, it's not about me. It's about the fans. So I've had a long era of non-artists thinking it's about them and not about yeah. the artists. And I, I hope, and I love what you're saying, I hope we're coming back to that, where it's about, again, the artists and the fans, right? And that's what it should be about, because so many A&R in my career aren't even real, they don't even seem like music fans, you know? They don't seem like they get it. The authenticity piece is critical, because if you can talk to an artist, and you can say, I've been, I'm not an artist, but I've slept in the train stations, the bus stations, done a lot of shows for free, traveled around with my guys, you know, not knowing how to get from city to city because you didn't get paid that night, da-da-da-da-da-da. We've done all of that for 20 years plus. So we, we've seen it all. And so if I, I can talk to an artist and under, I understand where they're coming from if they're struggling because I've worked with so many artists who had to struggle to make it and who are principled and who aren't doing it simply for the money and they're doing it for, I mean, I'm lucky to work at Monotone with Jack and Run the Jewels and LCD and Vampire and Danger Mouse because these guys are artists. Right. Their music is what drives them. Every day they wake up, it's about music first, music first, music first, music first. Sure, there's plenty of other stuff they get to do now as well, and they earned it, but it's gotta be about that. And if you're trying to connect with a young artist or anyone you know, who's, who's, who's curious about this music or passionate about the industry, I think the industry is less important, right, than it's ever been in some ways. And that's, as a, someone of the industry, maybe that's a little mess. I, I've sort of been on the outside of it to my, you know, I won't make that distinction. I've never really jumped in. But it's the most exciting time I've seen probably in music in, in 15 years, I would say. It's like a, a rebirth because I was part of the old industry and I saw it collapse and I saw it get rebuilt by new people, right? But by and large, by new forces, new minds, new, new ideas, new sounds. And we got to keep pushing that that part of it because until we sort of complete the revolution, right, the music industry is going to stay stuck, controlled by a handful of people, right, who don't really give a damn about the music. They give 100% a damn about the money, right? And whatever, I'm not here to judge them either. All I'm saying is that there's an opportunity for people to take control back and really, really, you don't have to, to be the most successful artist in the world to make a really good living and be successful and be happy. You don't have to be all things to all people. And I think that's a mistake a lot of young people make now. They think they have to reach everyone. You don't. You can be very successful, incredibly successful speaking to an audience, not the entire audience, but just the audience that likes what you like. I mean, the Grateful Dead are my template. Honestly, for everything, I know that sounds crazy, but they were doing it analog. All the stuff that, say, Run the Jewels and so many of us are doing now, they did it first. They shared the tapes. They did it. It wasn't about the money that drove their economy. Their ecosystem drove the, the economy. And what they did created money. It created value. And if you're interested in creating value for your audience and you're delivering on that value, you're probably gonna have people who are buying or buying into what you're doing because for us, it's always a value exchange. It's not a, it's transactional, but it's, it's, it's a human transaction, right? You give something, you get something, right? Uh, or you receive something, you give something back. And we think that is a healthy binary, right? Not the, because the, the kids showed us the money, they, the fans took the money away. 
you know, by taking stuff for free. They're like, they, the fans have the power ultimately, just like we as citizens have the power over our political system, in theory. That's another panel. <laughs> yeah, next. <laughs> another 20 panels. But that's really what it's about. Like, take that. Like, I'm a fan, too. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan on being in the music business. I kind of fell into it. But we operate that way now. Like, I think my first website was 1994. I didn't even know what it, really what it was. And I'm like, this is cool. Can we do this? How do we make one? Or we had the first site from my old label in the world where you could buy digital and physical in the same shopping cart. We had no idea what we were doing, and everyone we talked to was like, that's impossible, or it's going to cost all this money, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but as a fan, I don't want to have to go through two shopping cart experiences. I'm like, that's crazy. And they're like, well, it may cost you six figures to build something like that. I found some kid in Portland on a chat forum who was like 23, and he's like, yeah, I'll do it, five grand. Done. And then the New York Times starts calling and Billboard, did you know you're the first music site to ever do this? And I'm like, I had no idea. It says more about how whack the music industry was <laughs> than about any, how smart we were, because we literally knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
That was Transparency is the New Mystery by Marnie Stern. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Amichi Uzigwe and Tunji Balligan. So when we did in the music industry in the last few years sort of start to realize there was all this data out there that we should be utilizing, from my perspective as a label person, we started using data to do stuff like figure out where fans were and then help route bands tours, right? So it's like, oh, you got a lot of fans in Minneapolis. We'll send you to Minneapolis, right? Make sure that Minneapolis is on the tour, whatever. That is like data usage 101, right? That is like the bottom, that's like the kindergarten level of data usage. And I know that people nowadays are using data in way more, or at least they're starting to come around to realizing that data can be used much more specifically. So like and in marketing plans and stuff like that. So how, how do you look at data like in, from your business? I mean, one thing I, I do want to say is that every artist is different and every moment is different, you know? so. It all depends on what's happening at the time in the culture and also what tools the artist has at their disposal at that time. So, you know, you look at the music, you listen to the music, what kind of, what kind of records are these? What's going on in the overall landscape of music and in the world right now? And then you try to react to it. I mean, one example I could think of is like with Khalid, we set up a show with Spotify in El Paso where he's from and, you know, he has thousands of fans there, but we worked with Spotify to identify the 350 most passionate listeners who had listened to his music the most. And we threw a, a secret show for those kids and we filmed it all and, you know, made sure all those kids got to meet them and, you know, we made t-shirts for them. And, you know, that, that's just one little example of, of what, what we can do nowadays. But honestly, it's like, there's so many different possibilities. It just comes down to how creative you are and, and what the artist needs at that moment and what, you know, is going to be beneficial to that artist. I'm trying to think of some other examples. That that just happened, so that's like at the top of my mind. <laughs> well, right while now. you're thinking about that, I'm gonna harass and meet you to talk to us about Meow the Jewels. Because oh, if you yeah. guys don't know about Meow the Jewels, you you really should. Because talk about fan engagement. That was pretty much awesome. <laughs> the most unplanned, amazing thing we've probably ever done. So Meow the Jewels was something. It was a joke. It was for Run the Jewels too. We we always do pre-order packages, bundles. You can da da blah blah blah. So one night. And the guys were probably, uh, I don't know. Hi. <laughs> and they were he's like, on the record. He's on yeah, the record. Yeah, yeah. As, like, I was very high. They, 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 they wanted to spice it up a little. So they came up with like 10 other alternative packages. You had your Gordon Ramsay pack. I mean, it was hysterical. It was so funny. And one of them was Meow the Jewels for $40,000. We'll remix the album using only cat sounds. <laughs> And it was a joke. It was never, and then some fan on Twitter called The Bluff started a Kickstarter. $65,000 later, it was on. And we had a choice, LP was like, wait a minute, I've gotta do all the whole album again using only cat sounds? I was like, bro, it was your idea. You know you're stuck. So. Being the very smart and resourceful guy he is, he just called up a bunch of his famous producer friends and said, would you guys want in? 
And of course they were like, yeah. And then they regretted it because they were like, how am I going to do this? But we had like cat sending, like cat owners sending us like folders and files of cat sounds and <laughs> but little Bob the cat and all these people. Then we extended like, does, does a Jaguar engine qualify? Like, you know what I mean? We really had to go there, but we did it. It was amazing. And true to form of these guys, one of the reasons I love them so much, they couldn't let it just be a joke. So we took 40,000 and gave it to the families of Michael Brown and Eric Garner directly into their hands. And then the other, thank you. And then the, uh, we've given 40,000 to the National Lawyers Guild Mass Defense Committee. Those are the guys who, if you're out protesting and, and marching and you get arrested and thrown in jail and you don't have rich parents or somebody to bail you out, these are the lawyers that come get you and plead your case and help you. And they get paid nothing. So for us, it's easy to find all these charities that have tons of money to give it to them, but true to the politics of the gods, what they're about, let's put the money behind folks who represent the values that we also adhere to or aspire towards and are fighting the good fight. You know, it's cancer and everything else are all worthy causes. They got billions of dollars. God bless them, but there's a lot of other people who need the help, you know, and for two families who just lost their children and fathers and brothers and dads and uncles, you know, like, and who are poor, for, for my guys, it was a no-brainer. It was like, let's, let's just, they just lost their, you know, it was an emotional thing to a degree, but it was something that we all felt was the right thing to do. So that's where Meow the Jewels culminated, and it was an amazing project. It was funny, it was serious, it was, it was meaningful. And, uh, and it took over the whole conversation online. Right. You know, that's all anybody was talking about when it was going down. And we had now, a fake cat fur on the vinyl album. It was, uh, <laughs> it was awesome. That's a perfect example of, you know, looking at the moment and creating a, another moment that leads back to the artist story. That's right. You know, and that's, that's, what, that's like what we dream of, you know? Like, in, a, in addition to having great music and putting out videos and stuff, it's creating those moments that really become cultural for the fans and become, you know, memorable and stuff that, they, that they'll never forget, so. Yep. That's amazing. That's a pretty great story. I'm glad that you told it. Thank you. <laughs>
That was Fairy Tale in the Supermarket by The Raincoats. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Amichi Uzigwe and Tunji Balagan. One last thing before we take some questions, because we don't have too much time, is just to round this out for the people in the audience who are young, up-and-coming musicians. Can you give one piece of advice on how to use your data, how to put yourself out there, how to market yourself, how to, you know, there's all these social media things. I mean, we don't even need to go to the place of, like, don't spend money on a fake service that's going to give you 50 million Facebook hits or whatever. Duh. Don't do it. Because you know. I mean... Those lying will out. Like, you can't just fake your numbers. But what is the right thing to do with your time and your money as an artist to use your data to... I mean, I hate to repeat myself, but there's no there's no right answer. You know, there's... Because every artist is different, and, and every, you know... If you look at every... Like, think about your, your favorite last five artists that blew up. Every story is completely different, you know? So I, I, I hate to, like, give a vague answer, but it's really about trying to look at all the different tools and all the different platforms that you have at your disposal in addition to the to making great music and creating amazing content visually musically but you know trying to utilize these platforms in different ways there's you have youtube spotify soundcloud facebook everything i'll give some examples for example macklemore an amazing artist someone that i've known for 10 years that was grinding doing shows but ultimately it was great music and then he was making next level videos, you know, and, and really, and touring properly. And, and it was the combination of those three things that kind of turned into him becoming what he became. I'll give another example, Bryson Tiller. He was just putting music out on SoundCloud, great songs, and they, and they were catching a wave on their own. But, you know, he's a really quiet guy. He's not the most outgoing, not, not, he's really very introverted. So he wasn't comfortable with like tweeting all day or being on Facebook, but what he, was, what he really loved to do was take photos and you know, kind of tell the story of, his, of what his real life was like through, through his Instagram. And that became the second platform in addition to his SoundCloud that was like his most important platform. And, and I think he was able to show people his real life show people the, the journey that he had gone through from you know being a kid that worked at Papa John's and then six months later like Drake was trying to sign him and you could literally go through his feed and and watch him glow up and just watch him turn into what he became and also like see his daughter and you know see that he's a real person that that actually you know lives and breathes everything that his music represents those are two examples Khalid you know he's a social media expert that is in a constant conversation with his fans all day long on Twitter and just talking to them all day long in addition to having great music, touring, you know. And again, there is no right or wrong answer here and there is no, you know, one, two, three step guide to becoming a big artist. But I I do know that the, the constant is great music, great content, and creating a conversation with your fans that they feel like they're a part of so that they become your biggest champions and they feel like your success is their success, you know? And I, I wish there was a super simple guide to it, but, but there isn't. Just like there's no, no simple guide to making great records. You know, you just have to uniquely tell your story through the music and then find a way to enhance and bring more to the story through all these amazing platforms that these artists have that I wish I had when I was making rap songs, you know? Because when I was making rap songs, like, you had, like there was no iTunes. I'm really dating myself here, but you know, you had to get a CD, you had to make a CD, which was expensive, and you had to do shows locally and then hope that you got enough of a buzz that you could 
go out and do more shows and hope that somebody found you, you know? And especially if you weren't in one of the major cities. I, I grew up in California, but, you know, I remember Seattle was like, it was like Antarctica, you know, to, to us. When I, was, when I was making music, it was like, <laughs> Canada, my bad. But nowadays, because of the internet, we're also connected and so kind of all this all this culture kind of overlaps. So once you get a little bit of a conversation going, it's it's a lot easier if it's great to to catch that momentum and to turn it into a bigger conversation. I would add, I guess the first thing I would add, which is probably pretty annoying to hear, is before you get into the social media and the Instagram this and the Twitter that, work on the music first. Make sure you're putting everything into that music because I've met artists who are experts at social media. They can tell you this and this and that and that and that. And I'll be like, okay, play the music. Ah, okay. Because the energy is not in the music. The energy is in everything else. I'm like, you should be a marketing person, right? Because you know everything and you're incredible and you know how to tell these stories and you know how to push it out there. The music's maybe a different story, but you're talented, you know? And that's part of the problem. Like, music is so disposable now. There's so much of it. There's just an overwhelming supply. So as a fan, how do you filter through all of that? How do you know what's actually good? And I think so many kids are forced into thinking they have to be on Twitter and they've got to be messaging and they've got to... But if the music isn't good or the content that you're pushing isn't compelling, why should I care or why should anyone care? Like the sense of entitlement that you should, I, you know, I speak at a few of these things and I spoke to a young lady in the audience once who's like, why don't I have a record deal? She's 21 and I'm like, why, why are you asking me? Like, but do you ask a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor who's had, who only starts making money when they're in their 30s, really, right, real money? Who've had to put in all that time and go to graduate school and become experts at their trade? then they can start making money. But why not you, too? Why, don't, why, why, why haven't you never gone on tour? Oh, okay. You've never put out an album? You, you know, but you think you should be signed. Why? Give the audience, give the industry a reason why, right? And they will react if it's compelling enough. But that's, that's the, the society we live in, right? It's, it's the, the cream does often rise to the top. Not always. But if you've you got to be savvy, you've got you to gotta read, you've got to know the landscape around you and how it's shifting. You've got to know, where you, know where you may fit in better. Maybe that isn't the best platform for you. If you are a, a visual person like Bryson, you know, maybe it's not Twitter, it's Instagram, right? Or something like that. It's know who you are. You know, really know who you are and, and try and get a sense of what it is about you that appeals to, to people and focus on that, right? Don't be something you're not because the fans can tell a fake, right? Yeah, I, I feel like we're in the era of authenticity. You know, if you think about all these artists that are breaking through, they're all extremely true to who they are, like you just mentioned, and, and, and nearly all of them had a journey to get there. They didn't just pop up, like, you can see photos of Ed Sheeran busking on the side of the street in London, Nobody's, nobody cares. I remember when Kendrick was rapping about lowriders and, you know, pop pop and guns and shit. And then he had a realization, wow, if I make more introspective, honest music, it's probably going to connect with people more. Bryson put out a whole mixtape in 2011 when he was 19. Didn't do anything. Which, you know, you can still go find it. it. It was on SoundClick. Didn't do anything. Quit music. Had a kid. Got re-inspired. Made a song. Put it on SoundCloud and it started to move. So it's like every artist's story is different. And, and, and it, the, the overnight sensation is is very rare, you know, it doesn't happen, even if it looks that way. Like, it, there was a lot of work and a lot of effort 
put into that. And, and sometimes you have to pivot as an artist. You, you know, the thing that you're trying now might, may not be what ends up working for you. Like, for example, like, I work with these girls. They're called Van Jess. They're two sisters who sing. When I first found them, they were making covers and just they had a huge following for their covers on YouTube. And, you know, a lot of people knew them for that, but ultimately they, they wanted to be respected as artists and, and they wanted to make the transition to making original stuff. And in the past year or so, we've, we've been slowly kind of pivoting towards that while they've been moving around L.A. and meeting other artists and building their community. That's the other thing. Connecting with other artists and, and, and like-minded producers and collaborators musically that can help you bring your vision to life and can also add to your story, like, especially in hip-hop so, and, and, and also in DJ culture, like the collaborative nature of it leads to, leads to discovery. You know, like, think about how many vocalists you first heard on some rapper song or some DJ song or, or, or when you first heard your favorite rapper feature on someone else's song. Like, that's important. And even today with, with social media, like, even a photo can, can, can mean a lot. I remember when, when Drake posted a photo of him, himself with Bryson in the summer of 2015, and it just like, it was a moment for us. Like it, it changed, it, it added to the story. And like, like we both mentioned, there's, there's a million different ways to do it, but the most important thing I think in this era is, is making great music yeah. and the authenticity and, 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 and showing people that it's really who you are as an artist. And, and, and that yep. you're someone that they should invest their time and they, sh they should become champions for, so. Which requires a, a level of fearlessness and bravery and courage to step out there and, and really, if you can focus on, what, uh, on you and what makes you, like I said before, what makes you compelling to people, do that, and, but do not, we can talk a lot about the art and the creativity and the technology piece, do not ignore the business side of it because you will do so at your own peril Let's keep in mind, this is a gangster business set up by gangsters and it's still run in large part with gangster rules, okay? You know, it's, it's just, you read the history of the music business and then you still, when I, when I first got into it, asked my very high-powered attorney, why do artists only get 12 points? Because I'm reading this contract and I'm like, I was a philosophy major. I didn't know anything about the music business, but I, was, I studied philosophy in college so I can read pretty much anything. <laughs> And I'm like, it makes no logical sense. It just isn't, I'm trying to do the math. And I'm like, and you know what his answer was? Shh. At that point, I knew there was a real problem here. And at that, I mean, at that point, I had like six major label acts. I was young. I was managing all these major label acts. And I'm in these meetings, and they don't want to talk to me. You know, because they already figured it out, and they know how they're going to exploit my act, and they're going to do this, this, and that. And I just, I had to bail from that world. It was soul-crushing for me. You're right, because I was so connected to my artists as friends and we had grown together. And so I just went straight Indian and, and did it that way. At that point, because you couldn't be who you were. You couldn't be fearless. You couldn't be courageous. You couldn't say, we want to do this and we want to go try it, right? Because they'd be like, shut up, you know, go do this like what we told you to do. And we're all rebels, so we don't really respond to that. But know the business because they're fleecing a lot of people, right? And it's not fair. It's just not, it's fundamentally unfair. So if you have the gumption to take control of your business too and create leverage for yourself so when you walk in, when he wants to sign you, right, you can say, I sold 50,000 already or 100,000. That's gonna change the nature of your deal automatically, right? I've got fans, I've got data, I've got this, I've got my vision. I need a partner, not a parent, right? If you can achieve that, you're gonna win, you know? And if the industry has to stop infantilizing these artists too and treating them like they're dumb, right? Because 
Some of the smartest people I know, period, including Killer Mike and LP, are artists, like, by far. And I know a lot of smart people, and these, the artists, they always have the better idea, right? Maybe it's rough, or maybe it's a little, maybe you gotta rein it in, but you want the best creative idea? Talk to your artist and work with them to develop it instead of imposing things on them. But if you know who you are as an artist, you're not gonna let anyone impose anything that's fake on you, right? You're gonna have, you're gonna work with my DNA, work with, look at Sia, great example, right? The way they treated this woman, they wouldn't release her because they didn't think she was attractive enough. Look at how many hits she's written. Look what a cultural force she's got, because she did that. She took their perception of her and put it into her videos. I don't know if you saw the one she put the bag over her face because they told her she was ugly. Like, this is crazy. You know, she's a brilliant talent, and there's a lot of people that don't fit into what the industry may think is their, they should, f them. Break out of it, do you. And if it's good enough, the fans will respond, you know? Simple as that. Well, I was gonna take some questions, but I don't know if we have time. I think we've actually said it all. So uh, you guys are awesome. Amici Uzigwe, Tenji Baligan. Porsche Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Quasi, Marnie Stern, The Raincoats, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.